This is David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 9, Brother, Can You Spare a Crime, Part 1. So, as I explained last time, Episodes 8 and 9 are intertwined. Both are about Game Changers that, although very different in nature, are each hybrids. They both came on the scene at roughly the same time and had the good fortune of being able to take advantage of the new board game cafe scene because the power of word of mouth advertising helped make both of them party game staples and, for better or for worse, gateway games into tabletop for a new cohort of gamers. So let's dig into the roots of this episode's Game Changer. Both branches of its family tree start in the United States, about 30 years apart. One on the East Coast, one on the West. Let's start with the East Coast. The year was 1953. The place? New York City, which at the time was the epicenter of the U.S. television industry. All four national networks had their headquarters in Manhattan. The move to the West Coast would not happen for roughly another 10 years. In 1953, 50% of American homes had a television, up from only 10% only three years before. One of the most popular shows of the era was CBS's The Honeymooners, a situation comedy starring Jackie Gleason as wisecracking bus driver Ralph Cramden. One of its writers was Leonard Stern. And one evening, Stern was at home working on a script for an upcoming episode. He needed a funny way to describe Cramden's new boss's nose. Then, Stern's friend Roger Price arrived. Stern and Price were working on a book project together. But at that moment, Stern needed the right word for that nose. Hey, Roger, said Stern. I need an adjective that... Before Stern could finish his sentence, Price said clumsy and naked. Stern burst out laughing, and Mad Libs had just been invented. It turns out that the humor of inserting randomly generated words into a prepared text goes back at least to Edwardian England and the publication of Revelations of My Friends in 1912. Each of these revelations consisted of two pages, one on top of the other. The top page had windows cut into it and prompts for different kinds of words, places, well-known people, periods of time, and even drawings. All you could see of the bottom page were the blank spaces exposed by the windows of the top page. After filling in the blanks, you separated the two pages by tearing along the perforation along the right edge, exposing the entirety of the bottom page, where your contributions had been inserted into a pre-printed text. And voila! You had a perfectly amusing little story to pass around the drawing room. Now, I don't think Stern and Price knew about Revelations of My Friends, but they did know that they had happened onto a funny activity. They tried it out at a cocktail party soon after, and, I quote, hilarity reigned. This thing had legs. They needed a name for it, though. Luckily, they got an idea while they were eating at Sardi's, the legendary showbiz eatery on West 44th Street in the heart of Manhattan's theater district. They overheard a conversation between an actor and his agent. 
the actor had an audition coming up and wanted to ad-lib it. The agent said that would be a mad thing to do. Mad. Mad lib. Mad libs. And they had their name. Unfortunately, no publisher agreed with them that this thing would sell. Book publishers thought it was too gamey, and game publishers thought it was too booky. So they decided to publish it themselves. They ordered up 14,000 copies, which lived in Price's apartment on his dining room table. He later said that he ate standing up for months. By this time, Stern had moved on from the Honeymooners to write for the Steve Allen Show, the first major late-night show in television history, the ancestor to The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Letterman, Conan, The Daily Show, and so on. One night, Stern convinced Allen to use Mad Libs to introduce his guests, who that night included Bob Hope, and the resulting audience response and national exposure put Mad Libs on the map where it has remained ever since. If you're like me and grew up on Mad Libs, I bet you had no idea how its origin story is steeped in the lore of the first golden age of television. The Mad Libs brand survives today, having sold 150 million copies over the past 60 years. And since 2008, Mad Lib apps have been downloaded over 2 million times. The appeal of Mad Libs is, I think, pretty easy to explain. They're funny. But why are they funny? Because the basis of humor is unexpected juxtaposition, subverted expectations. When you pick, or your friend picks, the random words in the first part of the activity, you or they don't know how they're going to be used. And when you read the finished product, the more incongruous your choices are, the funnier it is. It doesn't matter whether your word choices are poetic or scatological. Every style of word has its own humor flavor. Perhaps surprisingly, though, given its popularity, it wasn't until 2002 that Penguin Books, by then the publishers of the Mad Libs line, put out a Mad Libs game, in this case a card game. That year also saw a licensed Mad Libs dice game. Neither set the world on fire. Looney Labs, whom we met last episode as the publishers of the first commercial version of Werewolf, had another go at a Mad Libs card game in 2012, but by then, the torch had been passed to a new generation of games, including the ones we'll be talking about today. Mad Libs also tried to break into the television game show racket. It only lasted for one season on the Disney Channel in 1996-97. Maybe its lackluster appeal was due to how they adapted it for TV. Although each of the game's five rounds involved wordplay, picking words, none of them really duplicated the Mad Libs experience, which fundamentally isn't competitive when you think about it. In the end, it was another popular and long-running TV game show that, although quite different from Mad Libs in nature, set the first half of the template for this episode's Game Changer, but I'll get to that later. First, we need to look at our other direct ancestors, so let's get into our Wayback Machine, set the dial for 1987, and head to the West Coast. Matthew Kirby was an engineer who had graduated from the University of California at San Diego. 
He was also interested in history and philosophy, and later cited one particular lecture which looked at the worldviews of Galileo, Newton, and other great minds as particularly influential on his own outlook. So Kirby started his career, got married, and then on that day in 1987, he was having lunch with his in-laws when he decided the conversation needed stimulating. I think that means that he was bored. He decided to start a conversation about who was the better writer, F. Scott Fitzgerald or Ernest Hemingway. Before his in-laws had even answered, he'd gone off mentally on a tangent thinking about other comparisons. Who was the better writer, Fitzgerald or Picasso? Who was crazier, Picasso or a toaster? Performance artist Laurie Anderson would soon explore the incongruous humor of such comparisons in her song Smoke Rings. Chaos mas macho, pineapple, e knife. But meanwhile, Kirby took things in a different direction. In search of stimulating conversation, he realized he had unintentionally ended up with an idea for a game. And the game he emerged with was not about direct comparisons, like 2009's Who Would Win or 2013's Super Fight, both of which have become popular enough party games in their own right. No. Kirby struck the motherlode with what he called apples to apples. At heart, apples to apples is a game about nouns and adjectives. The nouns are on red cards, the adjectives are on green cards. In the basic mode of play, every player is dealt a hand of red cards. Players take turns being judge. The judge turns over the top green card. Let's say it says courageous. Every other player now selects a red card from their hand, not the one that they think best represents courage, but the one they think the judge will find the most courageous in this instance. Everyone's cards are played face down and shuffled together, and then the judge turns them over one by one. Players are allowed, if not encouraged, to comment on them positively or negatively as they appear. The judge then chooses the red card she thinks is the most courageous by whatever criteria she wants, and whoever played that card wins the green card for that round. You can play until someone wins a certain number of green cards, or for a certain number of rounds, or for a set length of time. There are other modes of play as well. You can play reverse apples to apples, where you're trying to choose the card the judge will think is the least like the adjective. Or you can deal out green cards to the players and turn over red cards. The beauty of the game lies in its flexibility and expandability. You need at least four people for it really to work, but you can have up to 20 people playing in teams or individually. I've even played it with three people where the two choosers cards are joined by a random red card from the deck, and you'd be surprised by how often the random card wins. The beauty of Apples to Apples from a gameplay standpoint is its simplicity. It's easy to teach, it's easy to learn, it's easy to play. I first played it in the early 2000s, and it felt like it had been around forever, a sure hallmark of a classic. 
Often games where someone has to be a judge are fun for everyone but the judge, but not apples to apples. Sure, I enjoyed the challenge of trying to pick the right card for my hand that I hoped this round's judge would pick. But it was equally, if not more fun, to be the judge and get to pick the winning card. And unlike other games where the wrong answers were just wrong, the funniest moments in Apples to Apples were often about totally incongruous submissions, like Statue of Liberty as a suggestion for Lazy, for instance. I mean, she just stands there, am I right? How lazy is that? The other, less obvious advantage of Apples to Apples is its replayability. You could play two games in a row with exactly the same green and red cards shuffled into different orders and have a different game experience. Even the 1999 original version with just a couple of hundred cards was good for dozens and dozens of replayings. The beauty of Apples to Apples from a publishing standpoint is its potential for expandability. Within a couple of years, publishers out-of-the-box games issued additional card sets, followed by the Big Red Party Box version in 2004, which is the one that most people know. But a couple of years after that, out-of-the-box began printing themed sets, a junior edition for kids in 2002, a Bible edition in 2006, a Yiddish edition in 2007, a Disney version in 2009, and so on. People could just not get enough, and by 2014, it had sold over 15 million copies. Kirby hasn't been able to come near duplicating his first incredible success, but he'll never have to work again, all because he was bored talking to his in-laws. And then in 2002, a European designer got into the act. Jean-Louis Roubira, a French child psychiatrist, began working on a party game that year similar to Apples to Apples, but using pictures instead of words. By 2005, he started playtesting it with teenagers at the educational center where he worked. He found that not only did they enjoy the game, it also helped them think and speak better. Other educational centers began asking for copies. Now, as it happened, Rubira had a friend, Régis Bonnesset, who had started a game company called Libelud. Libelud published the game in 2008 with an initial print run of 1,000 copies for education centers and 4,000 for retail stores. That game, Dixit, has also gone on to sell millions of copies over the last decade. And since it benefited from the fact that, unlike Apples to Apples, it was completely language independent, except for the rules, it was much simpler and cheaper to sell around the world, with rules translated into Arabic, Bulgarian, Hungarian, and Greek, among many others. Dixit, I think, benefits from replayability even more than apples to apples if you play it with the same group over and over, because as everyone becomes familiar with what's on the cards, it gets harder and harder to psych other people out. The meta becomes very, very twisted, with bluffs and double bluffs becoming almost werewolf-like in importance. Of course, not everyone likes to play that way, which is why Dixit card expansion sets with more picture cards have proved so popular. So, we've uncovered the roots of this episode's game changer, Mad Libs and Apples to Apples. 
to complete the genealogy, we just have to draw a dotted line over to the family bastard. Now, there's always been a segment of people who use party games the way others use alcohol or certain pharmaceuticals, or sometimes in combination with them, as opportunities or excuses to loosen up and break the bonds of conventional social mores. Think of the way Twister allows, nay, encourages, people who might be complete strangers to come into bodily contact with each other in ways that would never be acceptable under normal circumstances. Even at the height of the Victorian era, some of the games in the book I talked about last episode, Cassell's Book of Indoor Amusements, Card Games, and Fireside Fun, loosened the strictures of that most regimented time with games like The Jolly Miller. In The Jolly Miller, couples walked around an odd man out, who was called the Miller, arm in arm, chanting a verse. And at the end of the verse, everyone had to change partners, giving the Miller the chance of, and I quote, securing for himself one of the ladies. The one necessarily left without a partner must occupy his lonely position until he is fortunate enough to steal a young lady from one of his friends. Unquote. All of this was undoubtedly in good fun. What, what? But I'm sure there were evenings when the carriage ride home after an evening of Jolly Miller was filled with awkward silence. Fast forward a hundred years, and, as I discussed in episode 8, the youth-led cultural revolution of the 1960s and 70s saw an explosion in sophisticated adult party games reflecting the political, sexual, and pharmaceutical obsessions of the baby boomer generation, like 1967's Orgy. 1968's Socket to Me, the in-game for swingers, or 1969's Group Therapy. Even American network television got into the act with shows like The Dating Game, The Newlywed Game, and, most relevant to this episode, Match Game. Running for almost 20 years on NBC and then CBS, twice nominated for a Daytime Emmy Award for Best Game Show, Match Game was hosted for most of its classic run by Gene Rayburn, a rather gorgon-looking gentleman. And while the contestants were regular folk, just like you and me, the panel was made up of a rotating cast of minor celebrities, including mainstays Charles Nelson Reilly and Richard Dawson. Match Game was kind of like Mad Libs in reverse. Contestants took turns over a series of rounds. On each contestant's turn, Rayburn read out a sentence with a blank that had to be filled in. The panel members were given a few seconds to individually and secretly write down a word or phrase that filled in the blank. Then the contestant was asked for their answer. The more panelists who matched their answer, the more points the contestant scored. Over time, the prompts became more and more open to suggestive or double entendre answers, as the producers realized that audiences liked this. For example, Johnny always put butter on his blank. Or, did you catch a glimpse of that girl on the corner? She has the world's biggest blank. As a kid, I watched Match Game a lot and enjoyed it, although I definitely didn't always get the adult humor. 
Recently, it came onto a streaming service, and I forget which one, and I watched it, but I couldn't even get through the first episode because of its sexism. Rayburn insisted on kissing a beautiful young starlet panelist because it was traditional for the host to kiss new panelists on their first show. And then Richard Dawson insisted Rayburn kiss him too. It was all just very, very squirmy, and they hadn't even started the game yet. Yet, there's no question that at the time, the show left a lasting impression on me and many others. It ran for 20 years on network television in a time before cable. And in 2016, it was revived on ABC with Alec Baldwin as host and is now in its fifth season. As with many hit game shows of the period, there was a home version of Match Game you could buy and play as clean or dirty as you liked. Mad Libs was also definitely playable in adult mode, and if you search Mad Libs XXX or something similar online, you can find thousands of homemade ones that are transgressive in all sorts of ways. Now there are even official Mad Libs books with themes like Ode to Alcohol, Bachelor Party, and Kama Sutra. We are a long way from the innocent days of the honeymooners, folks. Apples to Apples has also seen its share of unofficial after-hours versions. For instance, there's a game called Bards Dispense Profanity, where instead of green adjective cards and red noun cards, you have 100 prompt cards and 375 direct quotes from Shakespeare's plays, such as My Wife's Liver from The Winter's Tale, A Cock That Nobody Can Match from Cymbeline, and Cupid's Butt Shaft from Love's Labor's Lost. But it was a group of high school students from Illinois who took the fill-in-the-blank humorous incongruity of Mad Libs, the everyone-tries-to-pick-the-card-the-judge-will-like mechanic of apples-to-apples, and the nudge-nudge-wink-wink comedy of Match Game, and went to the bank with it. But that story will have to wait for part two. That was part one of episode nine of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table.